Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today's guest probably needs no introduction. If you're a fan of this show, if you've been following tech news over the last decade at all, tech blogs, that sort of thing, M.G. Siegler is one of the more famous tech bloggers of the last decade and is one of the more widely respected venture capitalists of the current decade. Today we talk about MG's career, his time at TechCrunch, Google Ventures, sorry, GV, and towards the end, how Silicon Valley sees itself today. MG Siegler, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, the M is for Max? <laughs> um, machine, Machine Gun, gotcha. Mucho Gusto, I only Boy a- Guapo. I only ask because my, my son is Max, so ah. I was hoping for a... Yes, every, Actually, everyone confers on me the... Uh, the name of their uh, their beloved person is, is their M. Right, right. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm more curious about Paris Lemon. Ah, yeah. Um, it's funny. That's um, So, you know, I haven't used that moniker in a while. Um, I sort of made a, a conscious decision to move away from it. Not that I, like, am embarrassed by it or anything, but just, like, you know, moving into the VC world more, I figured, like, oh, maybe it's just time to sort of, you know, grow up a little bit and move on to uh, never <laughs> to using something a little bit uh, a little bit different. Because I'll tell you the background of it, which is uh, which then you'll appreciate why I felt sort of the need to move on from it. So it's actually um, the originated as my screen name on dial-up AOL. I was hoping you would say that. Yeah, yeah back in. Um, the 90s and uh but how i happened upon it everyone always thinks of course like oh well you must love paris and and blah 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 but actually i was using a different screen name it was actually uh relgius which is just siegler backwards Mm. uh was my original aol dial-up screen name and one day i was on aol in one of the chat rooms doing what whatever teenage boys do in chat rooms but i actually ended up um doing what was called scrolling, um, which is hitting, uh, hitting a letter and hitting return, hitting letter and hitting return uh, in sequence very quickly. And in the old dial-up days, that would clog up the modems. And uh, so they ended up banning me from, uh, from dial-up AOL for doing that. So not just, you weren't kicked out of a, a chat room, you were, you were kicked Yeah, my screen, screen name was, uh, was banned. Yeah. Um, and being a sort of teenage boy that I was, I was like freaked out by this, of course, but also really wanted to get back online to chat with whoever I was chatting with at the time. And so uh, I run downstairs and grab uh, one of my parents' like other credit cards because you couldn't use the same credit card to sign mm-hmm, up mm-hmm. for the same account uh, since they were smart enough to know that. And uh, so I signed up for a different account, but as I was signing up, I needed to come up with a name as quickly as possible. Um, and uh, even back in those AOL days, you know, they would they would um, recommend the you know like Siegler seven four four eight two five three, and I hated all those mm-hmm. names, so I wanted to come up with something unique. And so I actually opened up an encyclopedia and started just scrolling through, seeing if I could find something interesting quickly. And I happened upon something that was called Paris Green. Uh, Paris Green, if I have it right, if I remember correctly is basically it was like a sort of like an insecticide or uh, some sort of poison that was used in like World War 1 mm. uh as like a 
yeah, is a way to uh, sort of poison various things. It was sort of a uh, yeah a bad gas uh, that was used in in one of the wars, and I was you know teenage self thought that oh that's cool I'll use that. <laughs> uh, that was taken um, as was Paris Blue, which I was taken because that's actually I found out later was a female jean company mm. uh, so that would have been a little odd Paris sounds Red like, Paris... sounds like a porn star too, <laughs> it does. Yeah. It could have been weird yeah. uh, and a bunch of other of the Paris you know color variations and uh, so I happened upon lemon I like I was around the time of like I think it was directly related but it, it may have been indirectly related to like that U2 uh, song Lemon. Right, yeah. It was on Zuropa. Right. And uh, yeah, I was just sort of interested in that whole, <laughs> for some reason I was interested in that. And so I sort of merged those two together and uh, that's how it came. Isn't that a weird sort of generational thing that maybe doesn't exist anymore where like we're from this generation where like our screen names sort of follow us through our lives? Yeah, yeah. Unless you make the conscious decision to, to end it. You to know? move it, yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, I know, I'm trying to think of any off the top of my head, but I definitely know a few other people who are like the same way. Yeah. And then when they signed up for Twitter, of course, right. they ended up using their AOL exactly. screen name. And then many have since also then moved on from it because, you know, yeah. because that was something they came up with when they were teenagers. Yeah. So um, if, if you don't mind, I, I usually ask people, you know, their first experiences online and stuff, but yeah. you're now of this younger generation, slightly younger than me, that was AOL like your first experience online, or did you do BBSs or anything before that? So it wasn't AOL, but it was probably. Um, so my dad had uh, an, sort of an early-ish IBM that we got for the family uh, back when computers cost, you know, a crazy mm-hmm. amount of money mm-hmm. still. So it was a pretty, pretty unique thing amongst sort of my friend group um, that my dad got this, and um, it was a IBM PC, and it was running DOS at the time. It was pre Windows and PS two maybe. Uh, I think it. I think it was. Yeah, because my first one was PS2 Model 25. Okay. I'm not, I don't yeah, remember yeah, yeah. the exact model. <laughs> I actually do remember the next model because I helped sort of buy that one. Uh-huh. And we had like a, the one that I got, and uh, I'll never forget, it was a 486SX uh, mm. chip. And, uh, you know, I always felt sort of bad about that because I got the cheaper one because the 486DX was the better one, right? right? And I got right. the, the slightly uh, cheaper version. But on that IBM uh, DOS machine, uh, we actually had Prodigy on mm-hmm. it. Um, so uh, we had dial-up DOS, which was really fascinating. But still, sort of same idea of just being able to connect uh, to the Internet and then all of a sudden, you know, seeing a whole other world out there was was uh, super exciting for me. Yeah. Um, so you grew up in, in Ohio around Cleveland? Yeah, that's right. Uh, just outside of Cleveland. Uh, very techy at all or more of a um it's uh you know it's, I, I would say it well, at the time certainly it wasn't known for tech there is like case western reserve and some other like yeah. good schools that are that are right there um but no at the time you know i think uh various families had certain things it's, it was a fairly you know affluent neighborhood and mm-hmm. so uh people would have sort of early access to computers i grew up in our i was at a, just a public school but we had access to sort of early um Early Macs and uh, right. you know being able to use those to play number crunchers and things like that. That's another generational thing is uh, that this generation of kids that uh, because the the schools were flooded with uh, Apple twos. You know yeah. everyone played Oregon Trail and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you got your your exposure to Apple products at school and then at home you had a PC. And, exactly. Yeah, and that's the way it was for a long, long time growing up. It was sort of like. Uh, a lot of my friends, even I remember, like no one had. There was one one of our friends, um, this guy named Alex, always had Apple products, but everyone else had uh, 
basically PCs, and mm-hmm. we always thought like, yeah, but but Apple products are the ones you use at school. Like, yeah, right, they're nice, right. like they're fun, but like sort of cutesy. They're the ones you use at school. Right. Well, know. even when I got to college, uh, my my roommate in the dorm was a Mac guy. And the whole rest of the floor are all PC people, and we're playing Doom and over lands and things like that, and he can't <laughs> take part. <in laughs> right, the, so exactly. Even exactly. as late as college, it's like, you're. why would you be a Mac person? That's just making your life difficult. Totally. Know? I actually remember the first time I was like super envious of anyone with a Mac um, was because it was when the game SimCity 2000 came mm-hmm. out, so the sequel mm-hmm. to SimCity. Right. Um, and it was the, on the best of the versions too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's my favorite version yeah. for sure. And it was available first on, uh, uh, um, you know, on for whatever reason on the on Apple products. And uh, I remember just going to like, I don't remember which stores, either like Egghead or CompUSA or something, and just going there to play it on that, mm-hmm. and then you know waiting for it to come for the uh, the Windows version to come out. Mm-hmm. So you um, you grew up in Ohio, but you you go to UM. <laughs> yeah, it was a. Uh, some some might say a traitor, um, though I will say like where I grew up is actually equidistant from Ann Arbor and Columbus. Yeah. Um, and then my grandfather went to Ohio State, my sister went to Ohio State, uh, and I went to Michigan. My dad actually went to Wisconsin, so yeah. all Big Ten, but yeah. Um, and you're studying film. Yeah, I uh, I was sort of all across the board at school. I didn't really have a good sense of what I wanted to do for sure. At one point, I definitely considered sort of going to the engineering side. So, like, at Michigan, the engineering schools on uh, what's called North Campus. So, mm-hmm. it's sort of like a separated campus. I, I lived in Ann Arbor for five years, by the way. So, you know it well. Yeah. Then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and so um, I very much debated doing that, but ultimately decided to sort of stay in the, um, you know, liberal arts side mm-hmm. of the equation. And uh, glad I did that, I think. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was a debate in my head. And well, so this is, I keep, I'm running across so many things that we have in common. Like, my degree was technically English, but I was screenwriting. Yeah. So, technically, I'm an English major, but it was all the film focus I was taking. Like, I learned to edit actual film, you know, like, and splice and stuff like that. Yeah, I took a bunch of those those fun yeah. classes back yeah. in the day, uh, things that I do not use on right, a daily right. basis, uh, nor does anyone, I guess, anymore, but yeah. But when you when you graduate... Um, you actually do pursue this for a while. You go out to Hollywood and... Yep. Yeah, I moved uh, right after graduation, um, you know, li- lived at home, I guess, for, you know, came back home for about a month and then drove out to Los Angeles by myself just mm-hmm. with all the stuff and packed in the car. Uh, drove cross country and ended up in L.A. Uh, and I had actually rented an apartment that I had never even seen in person before, just sort of, you know, looking on one of the online sites and... Uh, uh, yeah, pulled up and uh, had, uh, I actually did have sort of some connections that I could have sort of tried to play upon, certainly from Michigan, but also like family stuff and everything. And I just decided I wanted to just try to go for it without any, you know, connections uh, being used and um, is the, see what is I could the do goal out there. To, to be a screenwriter specifically or just anything? Else? I was sort of open-minded. I think I did want to do screenwriting for sure, like eventually at some mm-hmm. point. Um, but I also just really honestly wanted to learn all mm-hmm. the different things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the first job I got um, was very much the lowest level, you know, PA uh, on set, well, first in office and then on set of like a B movie starring mm-hmm. uh, Casper Van Dien. Uh, right, Starship Troopers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it wasn't Starship Troopers. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was a movie called Officer Down. And uh-huh. if it's funny, if you look it up on IMDb now, there's about like six movies called Officer Down. So you would even have trouble uh, distinguishing which one it was. Um, 
but yeah, it was just a movie that was shooting in uh, in sort of the valley of uh, <laughs> somewhere in uh, on the other side of the, the Hollywood Hills in in uh, Los Angeles, and it was a great experience. It was it was a fun time, but uh, very much um, you know very much just learning on the job. I think you also. I think I read that you read scripts for like uh, Ben Stiller's yeah. production company for a while. Yeah. So after um, sort of working at that um, the the first job, sort of doing PA stuff, um, I eventually then you know made some connection and then got a job uh, at on at a production house on Warner Brothers lot. Mm-hmm. Um, they had done like the Princess Diaries, I think, mm-hmm. and, and a few other things. Um, all obviously right in my wheelhouse, of course. Um, but so then I, was, I started doing script reading there, and then uh, one of the people that I worked with there actually had a connection. I think she had formerly worked at what was, what's called Red Hour Films, which is Ben Stiller's production company, and so um, you know, she put me up for one of the jobs there, just an intern sort of reading stuff. And I, and I stayed there for a while doing mm-hmm. that and sort of moved around, and um, you know, I, think I, I think I did a good enough job there that they sort of started to trust my opinion on what scripts I was reading. Did you did you ever read anything that that eventually got made? Yeah, yeah, a lot actually. Really? Um, yeah. The most famous one is probably most famous example of something that I read um, only because it's uh, something that stays with me was um, so uh, I'd read hundreds and I I still have a bunch of the scripts that mm-hmm. I read actually I kept a lot of them I didn't keep all of them I used to have in my apartment I had uh, just stacks and stacks of uh-huh. scripts that were like you know uh, several feet high just uh-huh. lining the walls of my apartment. Um, so I obviously didn't keep them all, um, but I kept some of them. But so one that stuck stuck out to me was um, one day I get called in by um, the producer, not Ben Stiller. Um, he had a partner, Stuart um, Stuart Cornfeld, I believe. And uh, he asked me, uh, "So you you know you've been here for a while. You've read a bunch of things. Like if you of all the stuff you read, like if you could make one thing, what would it be? Which of the scripts would it be?" And uh, you know, thought about it for a second, and I'm like, well, there was this really interesting one that seemed really unique called Juno. Mm. Um, and uh, at the time, it was, of course, floating around and obviously ended up getting made. It was by a writer named Diablo Cody, uh, and um, who wasn't known at the time, but, uh, but I think, you know, had some buzz around the things. Working for Ben Stiller's production company, obviously there was already a filter in place. Like we weren't, right. we were already getting, uh, you know, certain uh, a certain level of screenplay that was above maybe the, uh, you know, sort of the bad ones. But anyway, so yeah, that that got made, and uh, it wasn't made by Red Hour, unfortunately. Mm. But um, uh, a few other things were while I was there. One of the main films they were working on was Blades of Glory with uh, mm. Will Ferrell yeah, and. And uh, Napoleon Dynamite, and at one point I think Napoleon Dynamite broke his ankle, and so they just shut down production for <laughs> a while. But, yeah. So uh, why did the, the Hollywood career get uh, postponed? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I was doing it. I was out there for something like two, two and a half years, maybe, um, and just you know, working my way up slowly but surely, um, and. I felt like I got to the point where I basically had to make a call. Do I really want to like continue doing this um, and sort of go full bore into it, or should I sort of switch things up a little bit? I was influenced a bit by um, uh, a girl I was dating at the time, uh, actually from high school, uh, who had just graduated sort of a year below me, and uh, she was going to move out uh, to Southern California, but definitely wasn't a big fan of Los Angeles. And so I thought, um, well, you know, I'm already thinking about, like, do I really want to go into this now or should I sort of try something else for a little bit? And I thought, honestly, that I would just keep doing sort of this, the uh, script reading and writing on the side 
and uh, try something else. And so we sort of compromised, moved down to San Diego. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, went actually uh, went back taking classes at, at UCSD for, uh, for web development down there. Mm-hmm. And uh, was still doing sort of script reading and writing on the side and figured that would sort of continue to be my path. But as I started to veer more down the, uh, the web development side, I mean, that has always been a sort of side passion thing. And so uh, really just started to go down there. And one of the teachers at UCSD for those classes um, uh, eventually sort of offered me a job at, at the company that he ran down there, which is a web development company down in San Diego doing things like San Diego Chargers website, mm. um, a bunch of the biomedical companies down there, and it's a place called Pint. And so I, I worked there for a while. And it's around that time that you start blogging, I think? Yeah. Yeah, so I actually, I had started blogging uh, just on a blogger blog, blogspot blog that uh-huh. I set up in... Um, Paris Lemon? I don't remember if that, that's exactly, I don't even know if I had the domain at that time. It was definitely Paris Lemon something. It may have been parislemon.blogspot.com, right? right, com, yeah, right. Yeah. I may have not had parislemon.com. But yeah, so I set that up and um, I actually did that while I was still in LA because I was out there without knowing anybody. Um, and so, you know, either either I go to bars by myself or I stay home and blog by myself. <laughs> and so I li- did a little bit of both to yeah. see uh, to see what would stick. And so uh, started with, you know, the most simplistic sort of almost tweet-like, bl- tweet-like blog post, you know, like, here's what I did today. Um, and then uh, when I did sort of move to San Diego and started doing the web development stuff, that's when I really, though, did start to write sort of more about technology in like a more newsy type format. So this is what, let's say... 2004 or 5-ish, maybe? It was probably... So the blog... Yeah, I started blogging in 2004, I think. And um, I started sort of really, though, writing about tech and sort of focusing more at probably 2006. So that's that's a little before TechCrunch. And, so who, who, who were you reading blog-wise in, in those days? Yeah, it was, um, I think, like, uh, you know, the earlier stuff of, like, uh, the Jason Kotke. And uh, I, I definitely remember Gruber being on my radar as well. Mm. Um and uh, it was around the time that TechCrunch and uh, GigaOM and right. ReadWriteWeb and um, uh, everything and Mashable and all these other things started to come into existence. So it was around that time that I probably started taking it seriously. And then I'm like reading these these other blogs out there that had sort of started you know doing that and doing it very well. Like I was like, wow, these guys like. They're really making something of this. What am I doing here? I'm just sort of, you know, doing this on the side. Should I, should I try to do this for for full time? Did you, did you feel like you had a readership at all, or? Uh, yeah, it was, um, you know, in the early days, I was so excited when I'd get, you know, one comment on the blogs by right. blog, and then, you know, it, it grows over time. It was a very, very slow growth of like, get excited when I got three comments on a post, and and the first comment that wasn't my mother, and mm-hmm. uh, well, the that. first time you get on Slashdot or something. Yeah, like that. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so it was definitely a slow growth thing. There was no like inflection point that I can recall. Um, but at the same time, I also, uh, you know, another thing that that was that was big in my world at the time on the side was also um, using Dig a lot. So Dig had started whenever that was, like right. around that time, two thousand six, something like that. And I just thought that that was like such a great idea of a way to, um, you know, sort of use crowdsourcing to uh, to figure out the most interesting stories, certainly in technology at the time of the day. Um, and so I got really into just um, even before I was really into the writing side of things, I got really into submitting things to mm-hmm. to dig and sort of it all sort of played into this notion of like um, 
can I figure out what would be interesting to people, and um, you know, do I have a do I have a good sense of the zeitgeist, I guess, going on in, in sort of technology, it's and that helped me a lot. Like reverse engineering the virality of something. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, did that, spent way too much time, I'm sure, on that, mm. but, you know, was, uh, uh, you know, did get, did get a following actually through that of, uh, you know, other dig users and stuff who would mm. then, uh, and so I was able to, in a way, I guess, parlay that sort of usage of that social network, early social network, into sort of the blogging side of things and getting an audience for what I would write then. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it one of those deals where just because you start to get a little bit of a name for your own blog that um, VentureBeat reaches out? Yeah, it was actually, uh, even before that, there was another site, um, because I was down in San Diego, there were, a, there were a couple guys working on a thing called ProNet Advertising, which um, sounds like a generic sort yeah. of advertising-based yeah. thing, and, you know, they had some focus on advertising, but these guys, um, uh, you know, decided, I think, that they wanted to sort of expand the scope into more sort of general technology, and also some of them, I think, had also been uh, dig users and sort of, uh, you know realize that I might have a good uh, good pulse of what's going on. And so uh, they brought me on board uh, early on to sort of, I think this was probably 2006. It may have been early 2007, but I think it was 2006 still. Um, I remember writing, uh, one of my first things I wrote for them was actually about Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was obviously way before it was a big deal. It was probably then early 2007, because I think Twitter launched in 2006. Yeah. And so it was before the sort of, I think, all the South by Southwest moment stuff, but it was... Um, it was definitely not a big service at the time, and uh, people thought it was, you know, the dumbest thing in the world. Right. Um, but I remember thinking it was very interesting, um, and like I just remember, one of those aha moments was um, one of the obvious ones of, uh, you know, there was like an earthquake up in San Francisco, and I, and I'm on Twitter, and I just see everyone because at the time probably, you know, a huge percentage of the user base was based in San Francisco. Yeah. And so I just remember seeing um, like there's an earthquake happening, and I and I thought that that was awesome. Like it's like a crowdsourced, you know, news. Um, you know, because I am four, number 1402 on Twitter, right? Uh-huh. So I, in my memory of it, it was a weekend, like a Saturday. I wake up, and I don't, I guess TechCrunch, I, I must have learned about it from TechCrunch. Yeah. And so it's literally that morning, I'm like, all right, I'll give this a try, you know. But uh, like, so in, in my memory, it was just one of those things where in a day, suddenly everybody's on or everybody in tech is on. You know? Yeah. I think, it, you know, like that service, because, you know, it was the offshoot of, of Odeo, right? right? The podcasting yeah. thing that, that Williams and company were working on. And then um, you're right. I think like uh, because those blogs like TechCrunch and GigaOM had sort of found their footing already, it was maybe the first service that they helped sort of, you know, vault into uh, inter- to, to being interesting. I remember... Arrington's post was something along the lines of like, "Is Twitter interesting?" Right. Yeah. And it was still TWTTR or whatever. Right. Right. Um, and it was uh, people forget this too. It it was it exclusively SMS originally. You know, I don't remember that. I think when I signed up, it wasn't. I th- yeah. I'm pretty sure there was a web element of it, um, but I, I remember, that was heavily predicated. Around right. It. I remember mostly using it on the phone. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, well, so let's let's start to. I, I talked to uh, Calacanis about this a little bit, but I, I have such a strong memory of things like GigaOM and TechCrunch coming around and this sense that, because, you know, my first company was in 99, so, you know, I experienced the whole, the whole thing's over, and then that sense that really I personally attribute it to TechCrunch specifically, yeah. bringing back this sense that, oh, there's interesting stuff going on again. 
um, and sort of how the blogs and, and the blog community, in my mind, resurrected tech as a community. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's fair. I, um, you know, I wasn't working in technology, so I graduated from, from Michigan in 2004. Mm-hmm. I was actually oddly uh, an intern at Merrill Lynch when the, uh, when the bubble burst mm-hmm. um, in <laughs> at the end of my high school days, and so that was a fascinating time to be there. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, but so sort of I missed, obviously, I wasn't in the heart of technology during the original bubble um, and, and when that happened. But yeah, um, you know, in a way, I sort of... Uh, I sort of my college years were the uh, the sort of wasteland right. time, right? When everything was just shut down and and it was everything was very cold and, and quiet. And then, um, yeah, I think you're right, though. Around the time that that GigaOM, TechCrunch, um, you know, and all the rest of them started to sort of pick up steam, I think it was they sort of uh, helped each other out, right? Like there was a well, symbiotic relationship for sure. Definitely. And Mike's uh, first posts were just. Hey, there's this new yeah. company. Yeah. There's this new service. So again, it was almost functioning as. By the way, guys, stuff is happening. Yeah, totally. It's it, it right. It looked more like what sort of Crunchbase, mm-hmm. uh, you know, eventually became, where it was just like sort of a description of the company. Like there is another company right, right. today. Another startup launched. Here's what it does. Like there's a thing called Flickr. How, here's how you use it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think that there was genius, that, you know, to do something like that because. Again, you know, there was this sort of under-the-radar groundswell happening of, of companies obviously starting, and no one was doing a good job of sort of letting everyone else know about that. And then, you know, the two just kept sort of helping out each other and, and going along like that. So let's bring you back into the story then. How, how do you transition into, I am a blogger and this is what I do yeah. professionally? Sure. So, so like I said, so I was um, working at... Uh, I was still doing my sort of day job as a web developer, front-end web developer, um, and then on the side writing and blogging both for my own, you know, Paris Lemon thing and then also for this ProNet advertising thing. And, uh, you know, I started to really get into it to the point where um, I would stay up almost all hours of the night, you know, when I got home from the day job of just doing this, um, just blogging at night. And, um, you know, so it was sort of like having two jobs, basically. And uh, at one point, I just decided, you know, like, like, look, I really am into this thing. I think I can make something happen watching things like TechCrunch um, and, and the like rise. Um, I was just like, I think I can really go for this. So I left my job as a web developer with sort of the savings I had accumulated and just sort of tried to go for it, tried to, uh, uh, you know, make Paris Lemon a thing for a little bit and, um, you know, started to, I think I put out a call for some advertisers, you know, trying to figure out if I could actually make money from this. And I got some inbound interest, and uh, that was not fun, sort of trying to negotiate, nor did I know what I was doing, trying mm-hmm. to negotiate, yeah, like for, a, you know, for like a banner or something like that on the site. Um, but I made it work for a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, as I kept going on, uh, I think one thing that definitely happened uh, was, uh, was watching something like TechMeme, um, with uh, Gabe Rivera, sort of, uh, I think he had done a great job also watching the rise of TechCrunch and GigaOM and all these other guys sort of uh, coalescing around um, hot technology topics. And he did a great job, of course, aggregating all of those and creating um, sort of a yeah, zeitgeist of like what everyone was talking about. And so I was watching that. And so that would help me sort of riff off of like the big ideas of the day and sort of just, you know, I wasn't breaking any news or anything mm-hmm. like that, but I could sort of give an opinionated take on, on what I thought I knew about, uh, you know, whatever was happening uh, of the day and sort of all Do those you things. Ever, 
Sorry, do you no, ever look back on that and think, where did I get the chutzpah? <laughs> uh, who am I that have a, 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 an opinionated take yeah, on the tech industry? It's a good question because it's a, <laughs> it is something I look back on and God, if I look back at those old posts, I'll just cringe like yeah. crazy because, um, yeah, I had no idea what I was talking about. But, I mean, it, it turns out that you are good at it. Well, thank you. But, but, but I didn't know what I was talking about right. for most of the time. But, and, you know, the flip side was like, look, there weren't that many people reading, so the stakes were low. And it's mm. just like... Yeah, you know, I'm I'm sort of learning along with everyone who's reading me, and uh, so we'll just go from here. And eventually, um, uh, I did get the uh, I did get noticed by um, a guy named Eric Eldon at VentureBeat at the time. He was sort of the number two guy under Matt Marshall at VentureBeat, and I was planning to uh, come up to San Francisco for I think it was Mashable who had had uh, sponsored something called like the Open Web Awards, which mm-hmm. was sort of like a foil to the Crunchies or something like that. And uh, I was planning to come up to San Francisco for it with, a, with another friend who uh, I worked with in the web developer uh, days. And so it was um, a quick trip up and uh, Eric saw, I think I was coming, maybe I even blogged about it. And so he reached out and we met up at House of Shields actually in San Francisco. Um, and uh, he was just like, well, you know, uh, we're looking for sort of more writers. It seems like you're sort of an interesting voice out there. What, you know, would you be interested in doing this? And my honest reaction was like, it was a mixture of like, well, I sort of want to try, still try to do it on my own and also like, can you really do this like full time, like as a giant company type thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, working for somewhere? And so I agreed after, you know, many conversations back and forth to sort of um, try doing it as like a contributor um, at first. And uh, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that, yeah, like this is a real thing and, and I could do this for a, a living. You're paid at this point. Uh, once I switched over, once I agreed to sort of go over to VentureBeat full time, yeah. yeah. And then I moved up to San Francisco and that's, uh, that's how I, I sort of broke into it. So did you establish a beat there? Like, are you already doing Apple stuff? Is that like your... Yeah, um, this I remember very distinctly because it was a conversation with with Matt Marshall. Because I had lived down in Southern California, it was like he was pretty interested in the time um, because no one else was really covering the, like, sort of the intersection of Hollywood and technology. And I thought that was interesting too, given my background. Um, And so I was like, maybe I should do that. But I ultimately made the call of like, well, you know what, I'm, I'm... super gung-ho to do that, but I feel like I need to learn a little bit more about the technology industry itself first. So how about if I come up to San Francisco for a little bit and sort of do that for a while? And then the notion was that eventually I would move back to Southern California and sort of cover that beat there. Because that's uh, in the days of of MySpace and MySpace is LA based. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, right, and and everyone just assumed like that there was going to be because of the proximity, there was going to be you know this fusion of technology and, and media that happened like overnight, or of uh, entertainment that happened overnight, and obviously that's that's still ongoing. It's yeah, still taking yeah. a while, but um, but once I was up in San Francisco, I sort of fell in love with it and fell in love with the technology scene, and then. Yeah, to answer your question, so one of the things that I was, uh, you know, writing about at Paris Lemon, my own blog, uh, had been, I just latched into this notion of, like, I think, like, it's it's so obvious to say in hindsight, and even at the time, like, you know, people like John Gruber had been writing about Apple for, you know, long time yeah, at that yeah. point already, but I sort of, whenever it was, 2005, 2006, latched into the notion of, like, like my own personal story was, like, I finally had gotten my first uh, Apple computer, that I owned, and I was just like using it uh, in Southern California, away from home. I brought a Dell computer with me, and then I'm like using these side by side, and it's like, God, just the Mac is so much better. What was I thinking all that time? And like, 
Um, you know, obviously there were changes that happened. Apple moving onto Intel chips to make things faster and, and you know, sort of things going on behind the scenes uh, to, to make the Mac experience better. But I just felt like I was a moron. Uh, now, I see the, now I see the light and I, I have this notion that everyone's going to see the light uh, once, uh, you know, everyone gets uh, sort of uh, Apple in front of their face in some capacity, whether it's through iPod or Mac or, you know, eventually I was going to say, like, is it, your vision is, is that, well, is the Mac specifically will convert everybody? Or? <sighs> no, it was a broader thing, because what actually did convert me for the first time was an iPod. I bought an iPod on my drive, out, for my drive out to California, uh-huh. that long drive, and right, I was just right. like, well, I could either get, like, load up on burn CDs, or I can get an iPod and have 40 hours or whatever of, of music, 40 gigs worth of music in my pocket, you know. To, uh, to use the marketing parlance. Um, but that thing was great. I loved that thing so much, and I was happy that you know it worked with Windows, as, as you know, is very dev- divisive whether or not they should do that. Right, right. And um, so anyway, so that was sort of my entry drug, was the iPod. Right. And I thought, like, yeah, I thought people could do the same thing that I did. And I honestly had seen a bunch of my friends from high school and stuff sort of go along the similar path, as I noted right. earlier on, like... Um, you know, we had one friend who used a Mac uh, back in the day, and then I was seeing like two friends, and then three friends around the same time that I was doing it. And I was like, thought this is like this is really happening. I think like Apple can take over sort of the mm-hmm. industry in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, they say about uh, religion that the the most zealous are the converts. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is a very good way to frame it and a good way to put it. And yeah, that's how I sort of decided like if. If I believe that to be true, if I believe that Apple was like on the rise to becoming, certainly I didn't know it would become like the most valuable company in the world, but becoming like the dominant player in computing, um, then of course I want to be covering that beat. And so I basically just started doing that then for VentureBeat, um, even though you know they had started out because Matt Marshall had started sort of VentureBeat as a the he had been doing Silicon Beat, I believe it was called mm-hmm. for the San Jose Mercury News. Um, and uh, sort of when he spun out on his own, I think he was still doing a lot of sort of venture news and things like that. And then he hired people like Eric and hired Dean Takahashi, who's still there, who's mm-hmm. doing like uh, was doing a lot of video game news at the time. So he started to sort of turn VentureBeat into like very different sort of types of uh, things. And yeah, I started covering Apple a lot. So is VentureBeat did it have a parent at all, or does no. it? I, I don't know. No, much about yeah, it's it. just Matt Marshall. Oh. Um, yeah, like I said, he. Uh, he started it after doing his Silicon Beat column, uh-huh. um, and uh, yeah, I think he started it with again with the notion that he would sort of be covering venture deals, um, you know, by himself. And then he started to hire up a team. And when I came on board, actually, we had this whole like sort of launch party because I was one of a few people hired around the same time. Anthony Haas, another one who's still at TechCrunch now. Um, like I mentioned, Eric, Dean, there was a guy, Chris Morrison, and a few other folks. And uh, we were going to be part of what was, we had, uh, I think, Digital Media Beat, which is an awful name. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the notion that we were expanding beyond sort of just venture. There was always right. sort of this concern of like, well, doesn't Venture Beat just cover venture? And Dean was doing games, and I'm doing Apple, and all this stuff. So, mm-hmm. so uh, again, this is almost a question about chutzpah, but uh, um, you're not trained as a journalist. Right. Um, do you have to learn skills like cultivating um, sources? Like, how do you how do you learn to get news, get stories? Things. Like yeah, that? it's a, a good question because I it was uh, it was not a very straightforward process. I mean, so I had actually um, 
I had written a little bit for the Michigan Daily at, at Michigan uh, doing music reviews. What I really wanted to do, was, of course, was film reviews, right. but that was one of the most highly coveted things, right, and so you right. had to work your way up, and I didn't, I didn't do it nearly enough or long enough to actually work my way up, but I was doing sort of some fun little music reviews. But so that was my only sort of formalized sort of newspaper training, and it wasn't much. It mm. was uh, you know, turning a thing into an editor. Um, but so anyway, when I came out to San Francisco, um, yeah, I just like... I started doing the like the very natural thing of just like going to a bunch of events. This was an interesting time in San Francisco. It was around it was two thousand seven, two thousand eight, I guess. And so we're you know now fully out of sort of the doldrums and heading back into sort of fun times. Right. And there was I just remember coming up to San Francisco regularly, but even before I moved there, right leading up to it. And there was just like there was a party every night. There was some sponsored party thing by some you know big company that had just raised a round of funding. Um, almost every single night. And so I would just go to those events, sort of get to know people, talk to people about various things, and then just write like crazy. I think the one thing that I did, uh, you know, if I can take credit for doing something smart, it was just um, really sticking to writing as much as I possibly could. Um, I was very much sort of a volume guy, like could just, um, you know, churn things out like like crazy. And, um, you know, some people will say like, well, uh, you know, that's either... Either uh, cheapens uh, whatever you're writing, or it's just you know you'll get burnt out doing that. And I think uh, you know I did get burned out a little bit doing it, but that's just how I how I learned. Or it's your ten thousand hours. Exactly. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, so you're you're there for like two years, and then um, Mike comes calling for you, or yeah, that was roughly the timetable. Um, you know, they had TechCrunch and and you know Mike Arrington and. Um, Eric Schoenfeld, who was, uh, you know, sort of their the editor in chief at the time, they were very savvy watching the um, watching the landscape of blogging itself, and uh, so they'd put out feelers a couple of other times before, and then uh, just nothing ever came of it. I was like, yeah, I'm always happy to sort of chat, and also, you know, they're they're sort of uh, peers, right, at this point, even though I obviously still looked up to uh, what Mike had created at, at TechCrunch, um, and yeah, so they came calling for real about two years after I was at VentureBeat. And, uh, you know, a tough call of, like, you know, VentureBeat's the one that sort of gave me the, uh, the, the point of entry uh, into Silicon Valley and, and being able to do what I do. But, um, you know, Mike and, and company were pretty aggressive. I think they were also watching sort of tech meme. I was starting to get a lot of tech meme headlines, mm-hmm. and uh, that was something that, uh, that everyone very much cared about at all the various publications I know. Um, and so uh, that helped a lot. And... Um, yeah, made the jump then, 2009. Well, let's talk about the actual mechanics of it. So, and and we'll we'll use your time at TechCrunch. Yeah. So, um, do you report into an office? Do you have set hours? Things like that. Yeah, um, VentureBeat at when I started had an office actually in a in a place um, down south a little bit from San Francisco in a plug and play, which is like a tech incubator type thing. They had office space in there. It was like a, a nondescript office building type thing, and then eventually um, they moved up to the city. Um, but most of it was done sort of on our own, you know, knowing like that we'd be in our apartments and or on the ground somewhere out in the city trying to figure out what's going on. TechCrunch had an office when I joined in Palo Alto. Um, and so I would take Cal- Caltrain because I lived up in San Francisco. I would take Caltrain down pretty regularly. Um, and a few other people who were there, like Lena Rao had just joined right around the same time that I did. Uh, Jason Kincaid was there. Um, and a few other folks, uh, but everyone was coming into the Palo Alto office every day. And um, 
I forget exactly how long into it it happened, but basically one day uh, they told us that the office was uh, deemed not earthquake proof, and so they were going to bulldoze it within like like a few weeks or something like that, and so we had to find another office. It was like, really not earthquake proof. Yeah, 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 yeah. Either God's going to demolish it yeah, or we yeah, are, yeah. Uh, and so uh, we had to find an office as quickly as possible, and at that point even... Um, Palo Alto was just crazy in terms of rents, and we were like a block away from where Facebook's old headquarters was. They had these like groups of offices right on University right, Avenue remember, in Palo Alto, yeah. so we were right off of there. So we liked being in sort of the heart of what at the time was sort of the heart of startup world. Right. Um, but the writing was on the wall that like a lot of stuff I think was already starting to trickle up to San Francisco. Facebook was outgrowing that that whole space, and so um, we also like saw the rents in Palo Alto were crazy. And a bunch of us lived up in the city, so we just started looking at places up in the city and uh, ended up um, getting one up there. And so, uh, you know, that was that was good for me, living up there. Um, and I think TechCrunch is still in that same office that we moved into. Uh, I always, I've not really talked to a lot of people from this era because I'm still in the dot-com mostly. Um, so I've talked to a lot of people about the bubble bursting and the nuclear winter afterwards and stuff. Yep. Um, it didn't end up being a big deal, but do you remember when, you know, the whole financial crisis hits? Um, you know, there were a lot of people that are like, hunker down, this is going to be bad for tech. Do you remember that period at all? For and- sure, I do, because um, I remember distinctly, I think it may have been Eric Eldon, who I brought up before, um, who is the one who really hired me at, at VentureBeat, but then uh, he ended up being, at one point, editor-in-chief at TechCrunch, too, uh, later on. But I think he was still at VentureBeat at this time. And I think he got maybe the first leak of the RIP Good Times right. presentation from Sequoia. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly he was one of the first to post it. And I just remember that, and that being a big deal, of course, in the blogosphere and all of tech, um, because it was basically Sequoia telling its, in an internal presentation, telling its uh, portfolio companies, like, the good times are ending. You need right. to, to hanker down and sort of, um, you know, get everything in order because a lot of you aren't going to make it. And I had not been through something like that before, mm-hmm. um, you know, being in the in the middle of the industry. And I think a lot of us were just like, uh, mm, is this the bubble type thing again or is it something else? But I think there was also a more rational take, which is like, look, yeah, the housing crisis is a total nightmare. But the silver lining, if there is one, is this time, this, time, this collapse it has nothing to do with technology. So, you know, there's really not, it's not about, like, these, uh, you know, companies that are going public uh, on the technology right. side that are just, like, you know, completely fundamentally unsound and, um, you know, just shouldn't shouldn't have been doing that. It's more on the on something that we had sort of no control over. So I think the notion was uh, one, you know, there was obviously some fear and trepidation around what was happening because the overall economy, like the whole world economy, mm-hmm. right. you know, was on the verge of collapse. But... Again, the, the odd sort of silver lining was it wasn't us this time, and so we just got to keep going and sort of keep covering right. everything on the blogging side. Yeah, because that, that's my memory of it, too. It's the, it wasn't that tech was immune, and I'm sure there's numbers out there that might show that funding was down for a quarter or two or whatever. Yeah, it, it, it's, things slowed down for sure. But I, that was also the time of you know the App Store coming out. So yes. That, like, there was it's, so much stuff still rising to the top. Totally. And it's a great example of, you know, many people have said this now over the years, like the best time to invest mm-hmm. is sort of, you know, when things are in their lull. And this was like, a, you know, the perfect example of that. Think of all the things that started basically right yeah. after that. Like everything that we now think of as like a big new thing, um, you know, uh, 
Twitter, all those things are Airbnb, uh, yeah. Airbnb yeah. Uh, all those things came out of that sort mm-hmm. of fallout. Um, okay, so real quick back to the uh, mechanics. Um, so you're you started TechCrunch, I think, in two thousand nine. Yep. So TechCrunch is already well established. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another nuts and bolts question is dealing with the deluge of PR. Yeah. Uh, because you know I can remember in my last startup was two thousand six of trying to pitch to TechCrunch people and. Um, yeah. So when you get there and now you're at the megaphone of the industry, what is that like dealing with everyone wants you to write about them? Uh, it, was, it was interesting, uh, which is the least interesting thing someone can say, I guess. <laughs> it is interesting. I hate that. <laughs> uh, always, uh, one thing I learned from writing, don't say that. But anyway, um, so it was great in that I had had sort of the venture beat experience to, uh, to cut my teeth and sort of... Uh, you know, VentureBeat, I think, was doing very well, certainly, while we, while many of us were there. Um, but it wasn't quite at the, you know, the echelon of, of TechCrunch yet. And um, so it was good that, that I was able to sort of learn a little bit more under the radar, uh, even though VentureBeat was successful. Um, so once I got to TechCrunch, um, yeah, the, the inbound requests started coming in like a flood. And uh, you, because I had had sort of the, the filtering mechanisms already in place, I was able to deal with it. Um, but, you know, there's also, you know, many stories that, you know, you wish, uh, you wish maybe you didn't sort of, I hate to say waste your time on, but, you know, like there's, there's lots of little things that you're sort of writing because at the time, certainly TechCrunch felt like we had to cover still everything mm-hmm. uh, in the startup world. And at that point, by 2009, 2010, it was basically untenable to have to do that. You couldn't, you couldn't cover every funding launch. So, you know, we started to decide, like, well, we're going to cover every Y Combinator company, you know, that's coming right, out. Because, right. um, again, those are sort of already filtered through a, a meta- mechanism where you know it's going to be likely, uh, you know, more likely to be an interesting company. Um, and so it was all about, yeah, learning the right filters and, mm-hmm. and figuring out um, how to tune those to get to something that's really interesting. But if I'm being honest, I was, um, I was always, and I still am like this, more of a person who is much more interested in sort of uh, being a uh, sort of lion out on the hunt rather than a lion sort of at the zoo being fed. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to be out there on the ground figuring out, like, interesting stories and trying to break news or writing uh, you know, sitting and actually thinking for a little bit of time and being able to write like a really thoughtful uh, a thoughtful piece about some big macro thing that's going on rather than sort of the day-to-day of like X raised, you yeah, know, X yeah. amount of money, X, you know, did this and launched this small little feature on their thing. And so I had uh, what I would definitely call a, an adversarial uh, situation with with many sort of PR folks. And then it, it was, of course, exacerbated by uh, uh, TechCrunch overall mantra driven by Mike Arrington of, uh, you know, sort of PR is, is uh, I, I don't remember his exact terminology, but basically that PR is the devil mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, we, we don't want anything to do with that. And, uh, you know, we were, we were sort of the rogue, uh, you know, tech reporters out there um, who, were, who were not going to buy into everything hook, line, and sinker. Uh, well, let's talk about Mike. What's, uh, what's it like having Mike Arrington as your boss? It was uh, it was both fun and uh, obviously a little bit terrifying uh, when you don't know him that well to start mm-hmm. out with. Um, I think my first day, one of my first days on the job, if I remember right, um, I think Garrett Camp had either 
he either just st- sold Stumble Upon, or I think I think that wasn't right. I think he was buying it back from right, eBay. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and someone else had broken the news. I don't remember who at this point, but I just remember I'm sitting in that Palo Alto office and you know sitting at my desk, and all of a sudden there's a very there's a shadow that's uh, that's looming over me, and it, I just have someone in my ear like. Why are we not on this? We need to be on top of this. Get Garrett on the phone right now. We need to be doing this. We need to own the story. And, you know, in hindsight, it's sort of like, you know, yeah, like it was a story, but it's not, you know, the biggest story in the world, of course. Um, but that was sort of Mike's mantra, like pushing all of us to do, uh, you know, to, to make sure that we're on top of, on top of everything. And um, honestly, and, I, you know, I think he would say this too, like, you know, some people that drove them to do great things. Some people got burnt out very quickly and, and sort of, uh, you know, they just couldn't couldn't work in that environment. And, and I understand that, but I was sort of one of those people, I've always been a person who sort of thrives under pressure, whether it's pressure externally or my own, uh, or, you know, creating, procrastinating to create a, uh, you know, a last minute deadline that I have to hit. Um, I tend to operate better that way. Mm-hmm. And so sort of that helped spur me along. But yeah, it was a... It was an intimidating place to uh, to sort of cut your teeth working on that. I, I, I sort of like that story because Mike's always struck me as like an old style newspaper publisher. Like his time was the 1890s. You know, he could be, he could be <laughs> yeah. fighting it out with Joseph Pulitzer or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you, you really, that was the sense like it, this is like a, a, a war room style newsroom. Like yeah. we, we're out there chasing stories and leads and things like that. Yeah. And it's just like if you, if you weren't ready to sort of write a ton, be on top of everything, um, you know, just like you probably weren't going to make it in that environment. And uh, it was high stress. Um, but again, exhilarating in a way. What's the most you ever wrote? Uh, most posts in a day? <laughs> That's a good question. I think once I, I actually do remember a specific funny story related to that, which is uh, we're sitting in a meeting about something at TechCrunch, in down in Palo Alto still, and uh, I think I had told Mike that uh, like I might need some Visine or something because <laughs> I think my eyes are like drying up because I had written like fourteen stories the day before. And he's like, 14, huh? Not 15? That's interesting. <laughs> uh, and, you know, like, just joking about that. But um, I think it's, it was something in the range of 13, 14, 15 stories in a day, which is insane now to think about. I mean, these days I have trouble, like, sort of, you know, sitting down long enough and having enough time to write one thing and writing 14 stories. God, I mean, I, I, I just can't imagine sort of my mindset of being able to shift so quickly between different things that you're writing about. Um. Uh, two things about you um, just having been a reader of yours for years. Um, I think a lot of people, I think you're good at um, surfacing trends and even trends that are, co- like a lot of people give you credit for popularizing Foursquare and, and Instagram, seeing it, or especially Instagram, like, you know, there was a flood of photo apps at the same time. Yep. Um, so uh, do you feel like that that's a skill that you honed there, like, of all the photo apps, this is the one that's really special, and here is why. Like, yeah, so it's a great question. Um, there's nuance to this answer, as, as there is to most answers. Um, but the situation with Instagram was basically, it's actually related to sort of Foursquare in an odd way, because I was super interested in all location sharing, sort of that, that whole world, and, and figuring out like what's going to be the thing there, and, and will something... Will something become an actual big company because of that? And um, so that led me to get a tip from someone about something that was called bourbon. 
which was B-U-R-B-N. I remember vaguely, yeah. And so I get this tip, and I sort of start exploring, poking around, and I find uh, actually a website, and I sign up for this thing. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what it is, but the notion was that it was something in the location space. And so I'm like, well, it's, i got to know what this is then. And so, you know, sign up for it, and then I get a ping from someone named Kevin Systrom, who... Uh, sees me sign up because there were probably, you know, there were like right. five people who in the world who knew about this thing. And he's just like, uh, MG, uh, nice to meet you. Uh, I saw you signed up. Would you mind not uh, writing about this uh, <laughs> at all? Yes, we're definitely not ready for uh, any sort of publicity. We know you work at TechCrunch, yada, yada. And I'm like, this was always like a good thing about TechCrunch that I think, uh, honestly, TechCrunch didn't get enough credit for. You know, also it was sort of like, this men- mentality of TechCrunch being sort of like the bully and, you know, the big guy and uh, not doing, you know, sort of doing some, some nefarious things or whatever. Um, but TechCrunch, I think, always did the right thing. And sort of a mantra from Mike on down was like, look, we're never going to do something that really hurts a startup. Um, and uh, so, of course, you know, when, when I get the call from, from Kevin Systrom asking for us not to write anything about it, you know, I knew that that would have, you know, potentially blown up the startup uh, from day one and, and they would never have become of anything, p- potentially. And so, agreed, you know, like, yeah, just let me know when you guys are ready. Um, you know, can I keep using it? And he's like, yeah, sure. Uh, and, of course, we'll let you know as soon as we're ready. I mean, that took about a year uh, mm-hmm. as Bourbon sort of was this thing that was a web-based location thing. And they realized, him and, and uh, Mikey Krieger realized uh, in that beta testing period that, like, the real interesting thing about this wasn't the location part. It was the photo part. Mm-hmm. And so that's, of course, morphed into Instagram. And then they ended up building a native app around that, um, which, I, which I still like that mentality of, like, sort of trying it out on the web, figuring out if there's something, some utility here. And then they spent the resources to actually build out um, the, the app itself. And... Um, so I'm sitting on it that whole time, and then uh, I think, you know, they're in, like, very sort of late-stage beta testing, getting ready for the launch, and it's very polished. They had let a few more people in, of course, at that point. And then I think it was Ohm, actually, at, at GigOhm, Ohm Malik, uh, ends up, like, sort of breaking a story about it. Um, I had broken the story about their funding, because they mm-hmm. raised money from Andreessen and uh, Baseline. And uh, so I got, like, a little bit out there, but then uh, Ohm writes a story about, like, oh, this cool thing called Instagram, and I just, like, call up Systrom and, like, <laughs> what the hell? Come on. Where's like, I've been sitting on this for literally a year. <laughs> and so at that point, I had a call to make, which happened a lot. Like, do I just let the story go and say, like, well, you know, it's over now? Mm-hmm. Or do I double down on it? And honestly, I thought, like, this service is really good. This is really interesting. I think there's something here. And so I just decided to double down and wrote, like, a thousand-word piece preview of what Instagram was going to be. And I'll never forget. You can still see the comments on TechCrunch right now. Mm-hmm. It's like... You just wrote a thousand words about a photo sharing app. Congratulations. Like, yeah. like, and, you know, just everyone's saying, like, sort of like the Twitter thing. This is the dumbest thing in the world. Like, there are so many of these. Right. And just, you know, I had this gut instinct that uh, having, you know, having the, um, uh, you know, being able to use it obviously helped. But just felt like this one was better than the other ones that I had seen before. And I felt like it was going to be a thing. Um, you know. A funny offshoot of that is like, you know, there was all this, this talk uh, during all my time at TechCrunch, and not just about me, of course, but about everyone at TechCrunch, of uh, the notion of, are you guys sort of kingmakers? So in right. other words, like, when you write about something, are you like sort of setting its destiny to be, right. it's you the know, the next big thing? Sort of thing. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. Are we, are we affecting uh, what, you know, what the ultimate outcome would have been without us? Um, and I think the honest answer is, 
there's some of you know there was some of that in that TechCrunch had wide readership, and so it got it in more people's hands. Like a service got in more people's hands than it would have been without sort of TechCrunch writing about it. But there are so many counterexamples of things that never went anywhere or just failed right out of the gate. Let's let's if you can think of one. Is there a, is there a company or a service where you're like this is going to be huge and it never. Never oh, that's a good question. Yeah, uh, you're like, damn it, this is the next because I obviously thing. always take credit for the ones that right, work exactly. Uh, <laughs> but that's a good question. Is there anything off the top? I mean, like, like look, even like things like you know Foursquare, which is still around and, sure. and actually seems to be doing well now, is sort of a location backend layer right, type right. thing for businesses. Right. But you know, it got to a certain threshold and then never hit that breakout yeah. escape velocity. Um, and so you know, I think that that's one where. Uh, you know, I think um, it ultimately proved not to be successful in the way that it was originally construed. Um, other things, Cora, of course, still around, um, but for a while it was like you know the next big thing, and it still end up might being sort of interesting. I think it is really interesting right now in terms of the data that they have. And, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, they never became like the Instagram zeitgeist type thing. Um, certainly not yet. So those are sort of, I guess, two things. That may be more TBD because they are still mm-hmm. in existence. Mm-hmm. But trying to think if there's a good example of one that I can think of that I really thought would be a huge thing and didn't go anywhere. Um, I did write a lot about Simple Geo, uh, which was also in the location space, mm-hmm. but was more of a, a location layer thing. And I think they were in the right space potentially at the right time, but it ended up being sort of a uh, just a low-level acquisition and didn't really become a next big thing. Um, and there's a number of stories like that. It's yeah. uh, again, it's it's easy to point to the successes, uh, the 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 ones that sort of fall off the radar, fell off the radar, and people just don't remember about them. Well, then my my second thing about you um, is, and this will get us into the becoming a VC thing. Yeah, um, your most memorable pieces to me are sort of the the big picture, like macro pieces of where the industry is going, where trends are going, and stuff like that. Um, where do you think you acquired that skill, if you're willing to admit that, that you have that skill? Um, oh, I, before, before yeah. we move on to that, I remembered one. There is a very okay. good okay. example of one that uh, Great. Google Wave. Right. And, which is not exactly a fair thing because it's obviously not a startup. It was built within Google, but it was like sort of a startup. If you're going to posit that, yeah. that assumes that you understood what Google was. So. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> I did not really understand what it was, but I did think it was a. It was certainly. I think everyone admits it was an interesting technology. Sort yeah. of this concurrent being able to edit something, but yeah, like it right. just. I guess the notion at the time was I remember going in, getting pre-briefed on it from like. Uh, Vic Gondotra and Bradley Horowitz who were working on it. And uh, the notion was just like, um, oh, sorry, no, that was Google+. Plus. That's a, Back up for a second. <laughs> that was the, the remake of Google+, Plus, which right. I was skeptical about, and I right, think for right. all the right reasons. Google Wave was actually Lars Rasmussen and his brother, uh, and he was one of the, the guys who helped build Google Maps, if I have it right, in the early days, and, and then subsequently went on to Facebook. Anyway, we got briefed by them, and... Uh, thought it was just an amazing technology and thought like, well, look, yeah, and it's Google doing it. They're going to figure out, you know, how to turn this into something It'll that's be better than, at better than email. Yeah, exactly. We'll never use email again. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, and even back then, the, the mentality was like, oh, God, something has to get us out of our email mm-hmm. misery. Like, mm-hmm. this could be the thing, so mm-hmm. let's latch onto this. And certainly all, all journalists felt that email pain, too, and, like, mm-hmm. wanted something like this to work. And, yeah, they just never figured out what exactly it was. And so... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. I thought okay. I thought that was a good example. No, no. I, I'm glad you you remembered one. Um, 
So, okay, I'll tee you back up then. Yes. Um, your ability to, or your interest in, even for, let's not even assign you the, the talent. Let's just say your interest in looking at the industry as a whole and trends and things like that. Uh, where, do you, where do you think that comes from? So, this, and this is something I think about a lot now, given my current job as an investor. Um, I do think it comes from, honestly, as simple as it sounds, just reading a ton. Like, I have always been a voracious reader, not necessarily of books. I would like to read more books, but I, to the detriment of that, I read a ton of just uh, news and um, sort of all the various hot takes, for better or worse, mm-hmm. on, on things that are happening on a daily basis. And I feel like if I have a, a good a, a sort of superpower, as it were, it's the ability to take in a bunch of that information and try to distill out from it um, some core concepts and ideas of what might be um, something that could be uh, you know, compelling to a, wi- a wider audience. Um, and so even now, I feel like I always feel this, this pang of regret when I don't get to read enough during a day because I do feel like that's core to what I do, mm-hmm. what I did back then, and what I do now. I need to be able to intake a lot of information and then distill it down, having time to think, and actually distill it down into um, what I think is uh, uh, something happening. And from my own process, the way that I operate, and, and this is honestly why I think I sort of stumbled into writing in the first place, um, is because writing helps me um, really align my thoughts around whatever it is that I'm thinking about when I have to actually mm-hmm. write it down. It's an obvious thing, but uh, it really I, does I, help I don't me. think it's obvious, but it is true, I've found. Like, yeah. almost writing as a form of thinking. Yeah. And maybe, like, a higher form of thinking. Yeah, because, it, you know, all this stuff is going on in your head, and, and you have to get something down on the page, and especially when I know I'm going to publish something, mm-hmm. there's a there's an even higher level of urgency to get something that's, you know, hopefully readable uh, and actually makes sense down on the page. And so that's, uh, that's sort of my process. Reading, thinking, writing. Again, as simple as it sounds, that's how I, I would hope that, you know, if I had success on the writing side of things, that's sort of where it came from. And on the investing side, it's the same idea. So one day... Mike comes to you and says, I'm going to start a, a fund. <laughs> We're going to call it Crunch Fund, and I want you to be a part of it. Is that it, how it goes down? Or? It didn't exactly go that okay. way. Um, so fast forward to 2010. Um, TechCrunch had just sold to AOL, and uh, it was a very interesting time, as mm-hmm. you might imagine, for all, for all sorts of reasons. TechCrunch selling to a big corporate entity, that big corporate entity being AOL of mm-hmm. all places. I'm in the middle of writing my chapter on the AOL Time Warner merger, so well, I've, there been, you go. I've been steeped in AOL for a while now. There you go. Uh, certainly the AOL TechCrunch thing wasn't, wasn't uh, on the level of that. Right. Um, and, of course, it's, it's still ongoing, though now under the Verizon sure. banner. Um, but uh, anyway, so, and that happened, like, the craziest part of that was that was happening around a time of a TechCrunch Disrupt, their com- startup mm-hmm. conference. And so it's just, like, all of that turmoil all at once. And I think Ohm had broken the news about uh-huh. that deal. And, and, you know, everyone's whispering, like, what's going on, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so TechCrunch had just sold to AOL in 2010. And, um, you know, obviously they, they made it very enticing for many of us to stick around and sort of continue doing what we're doing because we were the lifeblood of TechCrunch, right? And uh, that included Mike, of course. And then, um, but I also, like, thought in the back of my head, you know, like, look, okay, 
there was this sort of uh, exit for TechCrunch, and we'll see how the future is. They say they're going to be hands-off, and, and we generally believe them, but, you know, maybe I should start thinking about what I want to do next. And so, also, you know, what helped the decision process along was a bunch of people reached out to me to see, like, hey, you know, TechCrunch is sold. Are you going to start something now? Like, you want to do your own thing? And a bunch of VCs reached out. Start something as in a, a publication? A new publication. Right, yeah. okay. Right. Not a startup. No. Oh, yeah, okay. Though, you know, potentially... That's, a, that's a possibility. Yeah, right. a startup well, it publication. Is, it is a yeah. startup, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, um, you know, and yeah, and some people were talking about, well, you know, would you be interested in being an EIR, an, you know, an entrepreneur in residence mm-hmm. at, at a fund or something like that? And um, so I started to think about it, but I was in no hurry to leave. You know, again, they, they made us good deals to stick around and sort of continue doing what we're doing and hands off, and, and we were appreciative of that. And But as I continued to have those conversations um, with various investors, uh, the conversation started to morph more into like, well, you know, what you were doing at TechCrunch was sort of like along the lines of exactly what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're looking for interesting startups and you're writing about them. We're writing checks to them. Um, well, and there's a there's a long tradition of journalists becoming VCs. Mike Moritz, you know, of course, probably the, there's, the most there's famous. There's the one very famous yeah. example of that happening. Yes. But there's others. There's Stuart Alsop. Yeah, and there's right, others. Right. Um, uh, and so, uh, right, it's, it's happened before and I didn't want to, you know, I certainly didn't want to have to live up to that like on day one Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know still you know that obviously hangs over you as uh, the ultimate success story but um, but it did sort of make conceptual sense right that that what you were doing what we were many of us were doing at TechCrunch and all the other various blogs was akin at least to uh, what people were trying to do on some level at VC. But you know what this is the third time I've asked this question. Where did you think that you get the chutzpah (laughs) to be like you know what I could be good at that. Uh, so the, the, the answer to that is basically, I was going, I decided after those conversations that maybe I should try to do this. And I was going to join, I was talking to a handful of different VC firms. I was going Mm -hmm. to join one of them. And I always told Mike and Heather Hardy, who was the CEO Mm -hmm. of TechCrunch, I always told them that I give them a long sort of lead time heads up if I was going to leave and, you know, like to the order of like six months or something like that. And so I go to them one day and just say, like, hey, I'm thinking about doing one of these roles at one of these VC firms. Um, and it was going to be more of a, I would say, like a you know, junior analyst type thing, not like a you know, full-on partner right off the bat type thing. And Because um, I didn't obviously work in the industry at that right. time. And um, that's when sort of Mike brought up the notion of, like, well, it, it, funny you say that because I'm thinking about starting you know, this fund. Um, and so we should talk about that and figure that out. And so it wasn't so much the chutzpah as it was like right place, right time as like, you know, Crunch Fund was getting off the mm-hmm. ground. And I thought, you know, I thought I would go into a VC fund when I was deciding I wanted to sort of try that angle and thinking like, oh, you know, I'll just be like sort of like my role is like a script reader and stuff. I'll be like the junior person and right. sort of yeah. figure oh, out everything. Yeah, that's a thread there. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But uh, instead, I sort of got accelerated along that path because mm-hmm. of helping to start a fund, which ended up being Crunch Fund, uh, with Mike Arrington, of course, and then Pat Gallagher, who was um, uh, also who, who was actually the VC of the group. He had been a VC beforehand and was actually uh, knew Mike from college, and so right. And Mike had been a lawyer, so he yes. has experience with deal making. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like that, so so right. he, so yeah, they had a, they had a lot of uh, of knowledge about how you know conceptually yeah. to do right, this. Right. Yeah. And you found you enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, it was fun. It was uh, it was it was another crazy time, sort of to hit the ground running. Of course, uh, you'll remember that uh, it started with some bit of controversy mm-hmm. after uh, 
the AOL. AOL was the largest LP in the fund, but AOL had also just recently acquired Huffington Post, and Ariana Huffington had sort of taken over as the editor in chief of like the, all the properties, um, the content properties, and uh, she made it pretty clear that she didn't think that it was appropriate that people who were involved with TechCrunch were doing a fund because mm-hmm. the plan, you know, originally was, uh, you know, look, we're just going to do this fund, but we're going to still keep writing and sort of, you know, keep going side by side and see where see where it goes. Um, when uh, so you you're at Crunch Fund for a couple of years. When does uh, Google Ventures come? Now? Yeah, it was about a year and a half into mm-hmm. it, I think. Um, so you know, Crunch Fund that original fund was around a thirty million dollar fund, um, and we were moving fast and furious, and we did a bunch of deals, um, everything from early stage seed deals to sort of some later stuff mm-hmm. because we had you know sort of um, relationships with people like Uber and right. Airbnb and things like that and so uh, some later stage deals that mm-hmm. at the time you're not sure if they if they make sense for an early stage seed fund but because of that we we ended up uh, investing in some of those and so we deployed a lot of capital pretty quickly and you know it was getting to the point where it was starting to you know think about fund 2 and um, around the same time uh, I had uh, you know, had a relationship with Kevin Rose, who, mm-hmm. going back to our other discussion about Dig, Dig yeah. the founder of Dig back in the day, and um, he pinged me, you know, seeing that, uh, you know, we were very active and doing a bunch on the seed side of things, and he was doing a lot of seed investing for Google Ventures at the time. Google had acquired his company, Milk, um, which was sort of a startup incubator type thing, and uh, Kevin quickly moved over to Google Ventures um, and sort of was with that team. and. And he sort of started talking it up and seeing if I would be interested in coming over. And you know, when when someone comes calling with the notion of having a uh, three hundred million dollar a year fund versus a thirty million dollar fund that you have to go out and fundraise for with LPs, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, Google Ventures gets all that money obviously from the one LP being Google, uh, it was sort of a no brainer. Mm-hmm. It was hard to leave uh, Mike and Pat, but you know, they they're still going, and it was set up well. Uh, they're on fund three now, I think, and uh, you know, so. Couple more questions, and then we'll wrap this up, and I'll let you get out of here. Um, you uh, you were in Europe for a year, yes, recently, yes. Um, because so much of the audience of the show is overseas, um, I like to ask. I, I I admit I'm very U.S. based, centric in terms of looking at the history of technology. Yeah. Um, but when I get the chance to ask about other places, I, I have to take that chance. So. Um, just give me uh, your general sense of, we can limit it just to, to Great Britain, um, if you want, or all of your, but what's, yep. what's, the, what's the startup, what's the tech scene like in London right now? Yeah, so I was over there for a year helping to set up uh, Google Ventures operation over there, um, now called GV, of course. We we uh, we're, we don't like to call it Google Ventures anymore because of the under the Alphabet branding. You know, right, there is right, one right, Google, right. and now there's GV and gotcha. capital G and all these <laughs> other things. So anyway, so GV helping to set up uh, presence in Europe, and uh, so that was about uh, already a, a year and a half ago. So it's been a while since mm-hmm. I've been over there mm-hmm. on a day to day basis, but. You know, the notion was like, look, we had been very U.S.-centric as a fund at the time, and we wanted to expand outside of that scope and see what else is going on in the world, because obviously there's going to be other interesting things outside of the U.S. And um, I think the high-level notion there is things in London in particular are interesting, but it's early. It's still early, even though London is a huge city, Mm -hmm. way bigger, of course, than San Francisco, Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, but it's still too, a little bit behind, you know, behind. I would say not even a little bit. Everyone knows. When that. you say that, um, in terms of even the infrastructure, like there is there like not the infrastructure of VC and stuff over there. There are, so yeah, I mean they're behind in terms of right the infrastructure of VC. There are a bunch of VCs that are you know doing I think very well for themselves, and uh, there's an increasing number it seems like on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the easy answer to that is like look there needs to be success beget success, and so there needs to be some real exits there and some big massive outcomes, and then once that happens, then it'll be off to the races. Mm-hmm. It's just that happened you know so many. Uh, you know, a generation ago already in Silicon Valley, and basically the diaspora of that success has just led to other you know companies forming, um, like Instagram, as we talked mm-hmm. about earlier. And you know, Kevin Systrom worked at Google for a long time, right? right? And so um, I think that we're seeing that in Europe, but it's just going to take time because you know we we're same thing in New York where we are yeah, right now, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, New York's a little bit farther along, um, I think, but uh, has also sort of been through a generation now of of startups and. Uh, the next diaspora is coming up now, and um, is there a is there like a a, a focus like is is London? There's a lot of fintech, or like you know what I mean? Or yeah, I mean right because London is obviously one of the financial capitals mm-hmm. of the world. There's obviously going to be a lot of fintech there because there's just a lot like of, like how Silicon Alley got started. A lot of ad companies, exactly, exactly. Madison yeah. Avenue's here. Yeah, people do what they know, and mm-hmm. you know as they should. And so uh, yeah, there's a lot of financial services uh, talent in mm-hmm. in London. So that's why they do that. There's also fashion, of course, and, right. and other things. Um, but it's starting to break out of that now. It's becoming much more generalist. I would say. Um, because there are things like you know not to not to promote Google or or anything on the show, but like Google you know set up this thing called Campus London, and it's cool to go to that. Like it's this just this uh, this thriving environment of really young people um, just from day one, sort of figuring out what they want to do, what companies they want to create, and uh, you know Google offers sort of infrastructure to be able to help to do that um, in a, in a compelling way. And more than just the infrastructure, it's just about like there being a community and proximity to one another for. Like we were talking about with Silicon Valley, like when I got up there, it was just like this amazing sort of culture, um, you know, which is obviously now parodied on things like mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. the show. Um, but, uh, you know, beyond the parody, there is like real, like, I, I think real heart behind a lot of that. And people are doing things that they love and they're around other people who are doing things that they love. And just the melding of all of that really creates uh, an interesting environment for, for startups to happen. And so London, uh, maybe as a direct result of it being just so big and not just tech-focused, which is a great thing, mm-hmm. but because of that, it will just take a bit longer of time because, you know, it's not everyone just, you know, melding around these uh, tech ideas. And I think in the long run, that could help them because it's, it's good to get out of your own head, to be out of the, the bubble, not, not a financial bubble, mm-hmm. but the bubble uh, of thinking around the same ideas and everything. And so long run, you know, I would be... Pretty bullish about the prospects there, but it's going to take time. There just needs to be success to beget yeah. success again. This is a total aside, but do you know the story of Boo.com? I don't. It's, uh, it was the biggest dot-com era startup outside of the U.S. Okay. They, were, they were based in London, and it was a fashion-based startup, which makes me think of it. Yeah. And they famously had already, they blew through $100 million before their site even launched. Um, because So this is like 99 and 2000. And so the still dial-up modem and stuff, and, and their whole thing was we have to make it, you know, how, how are people going to buy things without trying them on? So right. they were obsessed with, like, making 3D images that rotated and things like that. So they blew all this money trying to make it tech before they even sold 
a, a shirt, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was based in London by two Swedes, I think, were the founders. Uh, there's a great book called Boo Hoo, which is just the story of this insane run through, I think, $200 million in the end. And then, wow. like, was bankrupt within, like, three months after the site launched or whatever, but... And did they raise from um, U.S. investors or European European investors? and from people like um, the Benetton family? Like, so oh, yeah, it was yeah. supposed to be a fashion. It was it was one fashion site to rule them all. Essentially, right, so right. they got buy-in from all of the like Adidas and things like that. Um, so that that was where they got most of their money. But then there's interesting. It is a good book. Boo hoo! If anyone wants to look it up. Um, th- trying to, I can't remember some U.S. bank. Maybe it was Morgan Stanley or somebody. Their their London branch. Um, financed a lot of it. But then there's interesting stories of them trying, like, there's no VC here in London. Like, yeah, the, the time, fundraising right. stories were interesting. So, Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, so that has changed. Like, because there have been some successes and people then, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes when they have success as an entrepreneur, the obvious, one obvious next step is then to, of course, sort of invest back in the community. Yeah. And so there's a good, there's a robust angel community, yeah. Um, yeah. certainly over in the UK right now. And then, of course, there is the other thing that we just haven't talked about is the notion of talent um, in that, you know, Silicon Valley is was so heavily, heavily predicated uh, around talent from Stanford and then Cal and, like, you know, the proximity uh-huh. universities, similar in Boston and everything. And then, um, you know, in the U.K., obviously, with, with Oxford and Cambridge, there's a ton of interesting high-tech talent coming out of those places. And so I think that that will only help. And, I mean, look at something like, again, not to not to toot Google's horn here, but DeepMind is, like, one of the most interesting companies in the world right now, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's a, that's a huge U.K. success story and something that Google was smart enough to sort of scoop up pretty early. Um, but things like that, I mean, it, you know, if, they, if the, the country and, and all of Europe keeps producing companies like that, things are going to accelerate pretty quickly, I think. Uh, all right. Uh, one big picture question, and then we'll cut this off. Um, when I started this project three years ago, and you know, I'm, now I'm, I'm writing a book and all this stuff, um, there was still this sense of like I'm going to tell people how they got a computer in their pocket and their lives changed. Um, it was all this transformational. Everything's great. Tech is is changing everyone's lives. In the last six months, for reasons that might be obvious to people, or what. When I tell people I'm writing a book about the history of the internet, they, they start to say to me, like, oh, are you going to explain how it ruined all our lives? <laughs> yeah. And so I'm thinking about, like, Zuck's letter yesterday. Yeah, 6,000 words. Right. Yeah. Is, from your perspective, is there this sense that the worm has turned a bit in Silicon Valley and people, it's not, it's not all roses and angels and, and, and people are now starting to Okay, I guess what I'm asking is, has the image of Silicon Valley changed, and do people in Silicon Valley, are they feeling that right now? I think it's a very good high-level question um, that people dance around a lot. Um, And, you know, as I've been there, you know, roughly 10 years now, um, with that one year aside in in Europe, but... um, it was interesting, actually, to be in Europe because it allows you to take a step back, right, outside of the bubble. I didn't grow up in Silicon Valley. I grew up in Ohio very much outside of that world. Was in that world, deeply ingrained in that world for a long time. Left to go to London. It was not really nice to get a break and get outside and get some perspective again. And now I've been back in it for about a year and a half again. And so I like having these sort of uh, interludes where I can step outside of it. It hopefully gives me some better perspective on it. 
So when I think about it now, especially given everything that's that's actually very timely, I do think that yes, the perception has changed, and some of it is a, a mixture of things. I think it's everything that that just went on with the election. I do think some of it is like uh, the Silicon Valley show and sort of the zeitgeist around that, and sort of the the mockery that's that's inevitable. I think with success. I, and I'm even asking on the level um, we're here at TED, as people know, I yep. do in person interviews at TED. There was a, a famous TED talk um, by a designer talking about this notion that even on the design level. So many things are like addiction based. Yeah. Click through to refresh the feed, slot machine. Exactly. So even on that level. Yes. I think that that's, I do believe that that is correct. And I think the good news is that, as you saw from like Zuck's letter and everything, I think people are starting to realize that in a much more self aware state than has been the case ever before, uh, at least in my time in Silicon Valley. Um, I think that. People are sort of freaked out by the what happened with the election and just not only the outcome, but also that it came out of nowhere, right? Be, uh, the way that we perceive it is it came out of nowhere because, you know, obviously there's a huge swath of the country that voted for Donald Trump. And just in Silicon Valley, if you had only listened to the folks there and, and what all the... Uh, what all the people were saying on the ground, like, no way this could happen. Uh, and it happened. And so I think that that forces, it's a forcing function to cause you to take a step back and really think about what it is that, that all of us are working on and, and what it is that people should be working on. And uh, it will take people like Zuckerberg and, uh, you know, Sundar, Google, and all these people who are at the top right now to really uh, both lead by example but also just set um, sort of the the you know the marching orders going forward of like what those giant companies with all the resources in the world should be working on, and that will hopefully have a trickle down effect into more of the startup world. Um, and I think that we will see that. I think that we will see that relatively soon. The direct sort of effect will be much more sort of startups even focused on uh, quote unquote meaningful things. I mean that's that's hard to say, right? Like what a meaningful thing is because like <laughs> going back to the the Instagram example of like, why are you writing about another photo sharing startup? But like, look at what it's become. You know, it's like, it's the way that many people interact um, with a lot of the rest of the world on a daily basis. Snapchat, you know, mm-hmm. it starts as a sexting, right? Mm-hmm. But now it's become like a communication thing for a whole generation of people. And so, you know, the notion that, that Chris Dixon and another talk about things often start looking like toys, mm-hmm. right? And then become real things. Even Facebook itself is a prime mm-hmm. example of that. Um, and so I think it's, it's, you have to be sure that you don't lose sight of of that notion that some of the biggest things start off in the smallest ways. And so I, I, my concern would be with these sort of grandiose ideas of maybe Silicon Valley should be out to sort of save the world, mm. like, uh, you know, actually setting out with that, that mentality. I worry that that won't have quite the same effect as... Um, as if you go out and start with uh, sort of core ideas and then allow the people who use these products to figure out how they can use it to save the world. Mm-hmm. Twitter, a great mm-hmm. example of mm-hmm. that. As bad, you know, tw- like obviously I'm of two minds of Twitter. Like it's sort of a nightmare right now to use because it's like all Trump all the time and Trump is using it to, for his purposes. But look, these, you know, the people who created Twitter created something that then uh, the community took 
uh, to use for good uh, in sort of the various um, different up different uprisings that happened, right? And, and people were able to use Twitter as a means of uh, of serving as communication platform then. And now, you know, the for you know whatever side you're on, people have used it for other purposes now. And so, um, all I'm all I'm trying to a roundabout way of saying that. I think that yes, Silicon Valley is uh, starting to change uh, because the perception of it has is changing, and everyone's well aware of that. But that's not a reason to do something necessarily. The reason is like you want to be doing something that actually makes the world better. The risk there again is just like I worry that if people set out to simply have this grandiose vision to make the world better, they might not be able to hit that goal um, because they're aiming just at something that's too broad. And so I don't want to see, I think it's fine if some companies work on that and that'll be great. And, and obviously a lot of people will support them doing that. But I would hate to see sort of the 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 things that again are small, what are sort of quote unquote at the early stages, small ideas, because I do think like Facebook, like Instagram, like Snapchat, these things start out as small ideas and become really broad, big ideas. But you know, and no one asked for my opinion on this, but you made me think of it with Chris Dixon's toy things start out as toys my take on on Mark's letter is that these aren't toys anymore these are real things affecting people's lives and we need to if they're grown up and real we need to be grown up and real about them which is fine and I think the exact right thing for for someone like Mark Zuckerberg to say because he's in that position now I mean he's one of the most wealthy people on the planet Uh, he runs a company that's one of the most highly valued companies on the planet Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's their responsibility now that they have this power. I just look at the flip side of it and say, like, before, you know, while everyone, of course, aspires, that, that has a startup, aspires to reach such levels, I think it's it's complicated to try to set your goal as that. Um, I think it's, it's much... Um, it's much more reasonable to sort of start with core fundamentals of like what people will find interesting and go from there. And then maybe you make the next Facebook or maybe you make the next world-changing technology out of that. But when, but absolutely, once you are at the scale of Facebook and Google and all mm-hmm. these other companies, then yeah, you should really be using that power to hopefully you know benefit the world and, and using it for good purposes and not just um, to keep gobbling up more power even though you can like the slot machine analogy um and so uh it's a uh it's it's definitely a trade-off but um you know i think i think the mentality in silicon valley at least in the last six months has definitely changed and i think it's a pretty good uh it was a it was a definitely a real wake-up call uh everything that that's gone on and i think that things are uh changing for the better so seriously, my last one is pretty simple. Um, one time I was tweeting at Megan when you guys were at an Arsenal game. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, I'm, I'm, my mission is not to convert more Americans to soccer. Yeah. Because I think that's going pretty well already. Uh, it's specifically to convert more Americans to being Arsenal fans. So uh, just tell me your impression of uh, where you converted into... Well, you will like uh, one of the uh, one of my partners at GV uh, who's based in London, Tom Hulme. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a huge Arsenal mm-hmm. fan. He has season tickets. And yeah. That's why we were going to those games. Because yeah, yeah. we were very much debating, Megan and I, where we lived in London was right. sort of equidistant between, I think, uh, where like Arsenal is and where Chelsea, Chelsea is. Chelsea, right, yeah. And, so, and obviously both those are very good teams. I, and so it was like, which one should we go to? I think that was the conversation I was having with her, and okay. I was yelling through Twitter, "Not Chelsea, please! Anyone but Chelsea!" But 
uh, yeah, Arsenal games, those were pretty fun. Uh, uh, all, the, all the various chants that you get to, right. uh, to hear on the, on the field. Um, Singing the whole, whole game through, yeah. Yes, and, and one of the games we went to, I, I found it fascinating. The whole, the whole culture is fascinating because it's, it's different than, a, than American sports, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's different in that the little things in, like, you know, you don't drink in the game. You can drink, like, before the game, and so people, like, mm-hmm. you know, are, like, chugging beers, and then they go out to the game. Then you can drink during halftime, then you're right. back out there. And then they have police escorts if, like, you know, the rivalries are huge. As like, soon as you get off the train, escorted into the stadium. Yeah. And, and the fans are separated. Yeah, yeah, fans are separated, and so it gets pretty intense over there. I just, I love soccer as, soccer football, as, yes. um, <laughs> as I hope, and I do think that it will catch on more in the United States because... As good as, you know, the NFL is as a television sport, it's like, you know, the perfect sort of television sport. But I think that Americans think that because we don't watch a lot of soccer, uh, and soccer is an amazing television sport because it just keeps going. Mm-hmm. Like, there are no breaks for six minutes of commercials. Football, it has some ridiculous, that ridiculous stat where there's like, you know, seven or eight or whatever minutes of actual gameplay. Per and then hour. the other, like, two hours are basically advertising or on the sidelines like someone's Time injured yeah. timeouts yeah. Yeah. and it's it's like you're watching so little con- actual content whereas soccer it's yeah. ongoing it's great I love it well again uh, all I really care about is Arsenal but alright <laughs> all right. Uh, MG thanks for coming on the on the show that was a, that was a great conversation thank you for having me if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, And my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.